0: on the Apple podcast app. Right. Tom, good morning. And Hello, I, Ronnie. It's slightly raining here, but it's a lovely spring morning. There's a feeling of growth and brightness about the place. It's very there amazing. is,
1: and the birds are singing as well. Oh,
0: that's lovely. I know they're they're making yeah. a great racket in my own garden. I think they're beginning their courtship rituals or whatever yeah. it is. But uh, yes, great rattling and yeah, singing. Yeah, it's
1: wonderful. It's wonderful
0: territory grabbing and things like that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, spring is coming. You know, it is so. there's no yeah, question. Yeah. about that.
0: Yeah. Well, listen now, um, what have you got for us this week, Tom? Let's get,
1: uh, today or this week, sorry, I am talking about Joe Young's mineral water. Company. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, Joe Young was a very significant man in Galway at the end of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. Uh, He was appointed as a manager of Thomas Tracy's Mineral Water Works and Licensed Premises in Mary Street.
0: Right.
1: Uh, This is in the 19th century. And then after Tracy's death, uh, well, it was after Tracy's death that he was appointed manager. But he later married a niece of Mrs. Tracy. And then Mrs. Tracy signed over the works to Joe Young on the marriage. Now, (laughs) the significance... Hardyman, in his history, wrote about a well that was apparently about a thousand years old, uh, a spring of the same class as the celebrated Scarborough waters. And this was outside the East Gate uh, and was in great repute there. Uh, A spa house had been erected over it by a Mr. Eyre, and it was much frequented, and Hardyman attributed the long-living... the. (coughs) longevity of many of the people in the area to the tonic quality of the water in the well. It was analysed in 1751. There was iron and salts which rendered it a sweetener of acids. Many doctors of the period prescribed it and uh, it produced satisfactory results. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a 250 feet deep spa and this was part of Thomas Tracy's Mineral Water Works Uh, It had also been used, by the way, for making vinegar. Oh, yeah. There was apparently some kind of legal dispute uh, about the ownership of some land. and This was between Joe Young and John Ford. Uh, He was a publican who had the pub on the corner, which is now Blake's. Uh, And eventually this um, legal problem was resolved in Joe Young's favour. And in the 1920s, he acquired position, possession of the land in which the spring was. Now, he had also bought up uh, a lot of the facade of Eglinton Street. And uh, in 1925, he replaced the old, the original building that was there with the new structure. And I have a photograph of that new structure in the... Um, paper this week <clears throat> Ooh, he, uh, he installed all kinds of new machinery, his plant he regarded it as the best equipped factory of its kind in the west of Ireland now there was another analysis done in, on, in, on the water in the well in 1931 and it was declared free from all contamination it had a negligible amount of organic matter and it was suitable in every way as a safe foundation for first class mineral water now, it was only the water that, uh, from this spring that Joe Young used in his famous aerated waters. Aerated <laughs> waters.
0: Is it still there, Tom? Is the well still I know there? it is, yeah. No, Isn't I have it? to
1: say, oh, well, the well is still there. It may be well covered over now, but it was, My goodness. It was. It, it is still there. Uh, the aerated waters, incidentally, were known locally as Joe Young's Windy Waters. <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> the soda water was very bright, sparkling in appearance, free from mm-hmm. deposit and highly impregnated with purified carbonic acid gas. So in the 1940s, he installed a whole new plant with new machinery. Uh, the public was invited to come and look at it anytime. And in fact, for many, many years, and I, this is kind of a nice gesture on his part. Go on. Hundreds of citizens, local people, uh, with the permission of the proprietor, used to call there daily for their supplies of household drinking water. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a, made a kind of a community yeah. thing out of it. Yeah. You know, it was very nice. And now he he was he had other businesses that, like he bottled wines, beer, stout, whiskeys, all of that kind of thing. He did a great line in soda water siphons. Uh, I don't know if you remember those. In I do. Young,
0: I, do. Yeah, I do. I do
1: too. Yeah, They were very elegant kind of things. They were kind yeah. of exotic. Uh, and I have a photograph of a pub in Wood Key, And the, the, the shelves behind the bar are lined with these siphons. <laughs> <clears throat> now, uh, Joe Young, he was a committed unionist. He was a member of the Urban District Council. Uh, very pro-British. On one famous occasion at a meeting, Michal Walsh, who was the man who owned the Old Malt pub, who was subsequently shot by the uh, Black and Tans, he proposed at this meeting that uh, the the system of toll booths around the entrances into the city, uh, they should be extended. Now, these toll booths, if you were carrying goods into Galway, you had to pay some kind of a... Tax at these toll booths, a toll, and Michal was suggesting that this system should be extended to the docks and that every ship that came into the docks, including the British Navy, oh my goodness, be charged a toll. And this incensed (laughs) Joe Young,
0: who (laughs) leapt to his feet and said, If
1: that was the case, no British ship would ever come into the docks. I rest my case. Is <laughs> all said. He, he also Thank proposed, you. by the way, a motion <clears throat> to the council. This was during the War of Independence <clears throat> that an immediate settlement could be effected by an amendment to the present Act on the basis of granting to Ireland fiscal autonomy, subject to a fair amount of imperial charge. This motion was actually carried and subsequently. <clears throat> there was a more famous motion in the County Council, which was known as the White Feather uh, decision by the County Council, which again was appealing for peace, but giving a lot uh, to back to the Brits, really. Right. Uh, Joe Young's brother, uh, Sandy was his name. He was a major in the Black Watch. He was awarded the Victoria Cross uh, for his bravery in the Battle of the Somme in the first world war but he was subsequently killed later in that war.
0: Oh, yeah. Right. When
1: when uh, the mineral water business closed down it was converted into the oyster bar. Oh, yeah. And later this became known as this pub became known as the Lion's Tower. Yes. So I have three images this week. One is a photograph like I said about 1925. One is an advertisement uh of, of the company about 1900 and the other is a bottle a joe young bottle this was found <laughs> in the Karab near Inchigill many years ago by adrian Ryder, who very kindly right. loaned yes. it to me to photograph and uh it has the the legend you know the joe young legend yes. on it, imprinted on the bottle Lovely. and i've often wondered uh Because other companies in Galway had their own bottles like this. Uh, Where were these bottles actually made? So if anybody out there knows, I would very dearly love to hear. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. But even more interesting, Tom, is the well that might still be there. Because, you know, you go into any supermarket and there are shelves of bottled mineral water. And yeah. I, I suspect that except for some of the French brands I know, I'm sure none of them are mineral waters at all. They've been aerated or they have been just yeah. drawn out of the tap for all I know. But they're
1: bottled
0: and it's not handy enough to carry them around or have one in the car. But um that's amazing that there is that, you know, wonderful um natural yeah. well in the middle of Galway and it's not being tapped. I'm amazed.
1: But, but you would need to know what to do with it. It, it may well be contaminated by now, but. Uh... Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But the fact that it's natural and it has all those minerals is very, very. Yeah. yeah. I... Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I agree. did. I, I agree. did know yeah. about
0: it. I didn't realize there was such an, ex- you know, an extensive well there and that the water was all natural. That's really yeah. very interesting.
1: Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I agree. That's great. It was Tom. just inside the door uh, as you went really? into apparently. Yeah.
0: <laughs> great, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, Tom, that's just great. Thank you for that. That's a real uh, educative slice of old Galway, I must say. I learned a lot there. Thank you. Well, listen, I'm still on, obviously, the Civil War, and uh, I know everybody will roll their eyes to heaven and say not again or no more of this, but it really was a very... Unfortunate ending to a brilliant campaign to, you know, get Ireland its independence. Now, I know there was disappointment. We didn't get everything that we wanted. Uh, After a very well executed war of independence, really was brilliantly executed. Uh, The Brits came to the table and they made a good deal. They withheld the six counties for obvious reasons. There was a a large number of people there that would not, uh, under any circumstances, come in with the South. So keeping it separate was uh, at least allowed the, the treaty conversation to move forward we also then had to take an oath of allegiance to the king if you joined the parliament in dublin and a lot of members found that very difficult and uh, you know, we also had to accept that we'd be part of the Commonwealth. We'd be like Canada or Australia, still having allegiance to England. But nevertheless, the big prize was thirty-two counties to do what we wished to do with it. To you know, at long last, yes. I mean, twenty-six
1: it was, counties. Thirty-six.
0: Sorry. I mean, it was 20... so. It was so so exciting that to have that power at last. And unfortunately, you know, uh, about half, more than half the members of the Dáil were very unsatisfied with that. And there was a walkout of the Dáil members, uh, unfortunately, who would not accept that this was what we fought for, they said. We wanted the whole of Ireland. We didn't want this mishmash that was being offered. So the civil war erupted and uh, it was quite gentle initially. Uh, You know, people were hoping that the both sides would just cop on and and just relax for heaven's sake and get on with the politics that were required for the time. But I said last week that uh, these anti-treaty forces came into Galway in July 1922. They took up various positions around the town. The town was too big to hold and the arrival of the National Army, which was obviously pro-treaty army, they soon drove them out. There wasn't really a confrontation as such. There was a certain amount of firing at each other. There was firing on the train, as I talked about last week, as it made its way to Dublin, but um, it was very sporadic. And those forces withdrew from Galway. They went through Connemara, and they were welcomed in Connemara by the so-called Connemara Flying Column. Now, this was under the very capable command of Peter Macdonald, and you told me you had some contact with his family some years ago, Tom, which was interesting. I did indeed, yeah. Yeah. But they fought a a very good war of independence, uh, if one must call a war good. But it it was very effective, certainly, and. uh, with with very few exceptions, the Flying Column members sided with the anti-treaty forces and now is numbered about 400 men. So they went towards Clifton. On their way, they burnt the RIC barracks in Uterard and they arrived in Clifton promptly burning the workhouse there. Workhouses, Tom, of course, were hated symbols of inadequate relief yes. and shelter during famine times. They also attacked and burned the Marconi station at Derry Gimla. Now, this was this was a wasteful thing to do. Vandalism, vandalism. With, I'm afraid, which despite mm. its renowned reputation for transmitting the first commercial wireless message across the Atlantic in 1907, I've written about it several times, and was a major employer in the district, it would never reopen. Now, again, Tom, I just want to emphasis, emphasize that the general election, which followed the walkout from the Dáil on June the eighteenth, nineteen twenty-two, the vast majority of Irish people had voted clearly for the pro-Treaty candidates, and Clifton was no exception. Now these men came into the town, and the the the, the residents in Clifton they attempted to carry on life as the best they could, but it was often proving difficult. The uh, town was effectively occupied by the anti-treaty forces and uh, the anti-treaty forces occupied the barracks on the main street and Sunnybank, a large house situated on the hill north of the town. So they, they blew up bridges, they entrenched parts of the roads, making sure that any traffic coming from the Galway side of Clifton, if you like, would, would not enter the town. And they concentrated their forces facing down, if you like, the Galway Road. Now, they did a few odd things there. Uh, in, in an attempt to keep news from the outside world, all newspapers, particularly the Irish Independent, and they fiercely hated the Irish Independent because it was really outspoken in its anti treatyites you know, vitriol. It just couldn't stand that these people were not prepared to accept them the 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 opinion of the vast majority of irish people now there was a poor old clifton man called james lee tom he was arrested and detained for a day for possessing a copy of that newspaper of the irish independent and oh, there was a purposes. miss i know yeah there was a miss fergus from roundstone she had six copies and they were taken from her and burnt and she was warned not to bring those papers into this district no. <laughs> but on august the third, mister Smith, who was captain of the Dung Angus, arrived in Roundstone with a hundred sacks of mail, and for three weeks there was no communication with the outside world, remember, and everybody was delighted. And Richard Berridge from Ballinahinch Castle arrived with his car he must have had petrol stored away somewhere, and he took three sacks of post to Tombiola and a further twelve sacks to recess. So it was evident, however, that, um, you know, people, there was life on the outside and the outside world were well aware of what was going on in Clifton. Now, just to add to the misery of it all, there was an outbreak of fever in Roundstone. The local dispensary doctor managed to get a message to the Minister for Local Government in Dublin, complaining he was unable to carry out his duties. And he wrote, we are absolutely cut off here. There's no poster telephone communications, no railway, and worst of all, there's no petrol. Ambulances attempting to remove patients to Galway Hospital were forced to turn back. Now, the next thing was the anti-treaty forces were probably getting nervous at this stage, realizing that the National Army was certainly going to make an effort to regain Clifton. But anyway, the anti-treaty forces demanded that all citizens hold permits from now on. And now this was the last straw for Monsignor Patrick McAlpine, a larger-than-life character whom I have mentioned before in all the various events that have happened in Clifton, including the attack by the <coughs> Capitans, the arrival of the first transatlantic plane. Anyway, Monsignor Patrick McAlpine said this was absolutely nonsense. He refused to comply with the order. When When... When he refused again, when he was trying to visit a house just outside the town, he was stopped by the anti-Treatyites, told him he can't go further. He didn't have a pass. He declared that he would die by the roadside before he would allow to be asked for a permit from boys he had baptized. And the,
1: the,
0: the requirement well. for a pass was dropped. Anyway, matters nationally. This is where things were getting very, very serious. Everything was developing, sadly, at a deadly pace. On August the 22nd, as as I've said before, Michael Collins was shot dead. In response, the provisional government under Cosgrave, Richard Mulcahy, who was Minister for Defence, Kevin O'Higgins, Minister for Justice. They had to now accept that the nation was facing an unlawful rebellion against an elected Irish government. The matter now had to be treated as a criminal act. And so it introduced the deadly public safety bill, which in effect gave powers to the state that anybody bearing arms, Tom, other than the legitimate forces of the state, could be executed by firing squad. And as I mentioned last week, four young men from the Hedford area were executed. Now, in response, Liam Lynch, who was the anti-treatyite, chief of staff, ordered the killing of any TD who voted for this murder bill, as he called it. He also threatened to kill hostile judges to their cause and newspaper editors, which must have gone down badly with the Irish Independent. Anyway, it was out-and-out war. And now we know this story, but just to remind us, because it has a kind of a, a, a West of Ireland attachment to it, on December the 7th, 1922, two TDs who supported the treaty, Sean Hales of Cork, Porrick O'Malley of Connemara. He was the deputy speaker of the Dáil, and he'd fought a famous gun battle against the armed RIC at his home in Kilmilkin. They came out of a hotel on the Ormond Quay along Dublin's River Liffey. Two gunmen opened fire, killing Hales and wounding O'Malley. As a direct result of that attack, the government moved into action and put into effect its uh, its public safety bill they executed four men that were already in prison including liam mellows who led the galway insurgents of 1916 by mm-hmm. november the 8th tom i'm just moving ahead now just to give an idea of how this was happening um eight men had been executed including this was an amazing one, erskine Childers, who was secretary to the team that had negotiated the treaty in london and who in 1914 smuggled a large cargo of rifles and ammunition into Dublin on board his boat, the Asgard, effectively arming the 1916 Rising. However, he was caught with a gun, he was charged with criminal activity, and he was shot. And it would finally take 81 executions before the Civil War ended in May 1923. And there were six young men were shot in Tum in the last few weeks of that strife, but I'll come to them in another week. But in the meantime, back to Clifton. The plan to capture Clifton by sea was devised when it was realised that all roads into the town were trenched, bridges were blown, as I said, and well-armed anti-treaty forces were in position. And of course, they they were all looking out towards the Galway direction or the road. Meanwhile, the sea behind them was opened. So on August the 12th, under the command of Colonel Commandant Michael Brennan. Now, I'm not sure if his first name is Michael or Austin. It's given both names in various reports. But however... Uh, we we'll just have to call him Brennan. A large force of men set out from Galway docks in three large motor trawlers and headed first for Kilronan on the Aran Islands, where they were welcomed by the islanders. Absolute secrecy was essential. The islanders agreed to to guide the attack around the dangerous Head area. However, the sea was rough and misty. The attack was called off and the force returned to Kilronan. 24 hours later, in better sea conditions, Tom, and again in darkness, the main force went to Inish Turk Island, from where local fishermen guided them into Air Fort in Kingston Bay, and they began a trek towards the town of Clifton. Another force had landed at Manon Bay. So at dawn, the National Army was in Clifton. The anti-treaty forces were taken totally by surprise. They didn't expect an attack from the sea, imagine. They immediately began to withdraw into the hills. (coughs) Now, a Captain Uh Fallon of the National Army, in charge of the advance guard, opened fire in the town barracks, where he expected to find resistance. But when he entered the building, it was deserted. Similarly, the hill post sunny bank, which had a clear view of the Galway Road, was certainly uh, was occupied by a sniper who opened fire in the National Army, but only to allow his comrades to escape, which they did. And once they got to safety, the sniper stopped firing and followed them into the mountains. So slowly the townspeople, Tom, came out to greet the soldiers and to cook them breakfast and invite them into their homes. There was a, <laughs> a celebration in the town. Monsignor yes. Macalpine bade them all a cade me le on behalf of the long-suffering people, and he thanked the Irish troops for all they had done, and he bade them welcome to the capital of Connemara. So <laughs> McAlpine never lost a trick.
1: No, he didn't.
0: So next week, I'm still on Clifton because the anti-treaty forces retreated into the hills. They kept up a barrage, you know, kept up sniping whenever they could. There was a very serious ambush. And there was an extraordinary story that I have to tell. And it's an embarrassing story to tell. They burnt an orphanage uh, which only had boys Protestant boys left over from the antagonism of the old um, Bible-thumping days. But this was an orphanage which was just, you know, just occupied by Protestant boys. That orphanage was burnt to the ground. And I'm going to talk about that extraordinary story and how the British Navy took those boys off the coast of Clifton, brought them to England, never to be seen in Ireland again. But that's next week, Tom.
1: Yeah, well, we look forward to that.
0: Right? Well, we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, it's yeah.
0: kind of adventurous. Uh, it's It was much more deadly in other parts of Ireland than it was in the Clifton area. It was much oh, yeah. more deadly, for example, in the east part of County Galway, which I will tell later on. But at yeah. the moment, the Clifton thing was a kind of an anti-climax, really. There was no great battle. And yeah. uh, <clears throat> the anti-Treatyites wisely fled to the hills, I think.
1: I think the story of the civil war needs to be told. I think the current generation up and coming generation need to know their history. Uh, Like when I was in school, history stopped at the year 1900. Yeah. Uh, You know, it didn't go any further. Uh, You heard vague headlines about 1916. You certainly heard nothing about the war of independence or the civil war. Yeah. Uh, So I think, yeah, it needs to be told. So, Keep telling it, Ronnie. It does
0: need to be told, Tom, especially the Civil War, because it's so hurtful. It's so deadly. It's such a waste, such a disaster, because at the end, after 81 people were executed and many others were killed and maimed, particularly in Kerry, for some reason, Kerry really was quite savage over the Civil War thing. Brother yeah. literally fought brother family against family. It was very, very vicious. Now, it only lasted 10 months, thank God, but a lot yeah. of damage was done. And deep division was sowed into the Irish people. And we didn't have it in our country, but they certainly had it in, um, what would I say, in, in our parents' generation. I mean, oh, my father wouldn't stand a certain... A political figure all his life because he blamed him for starting the civil war, and to me that meant nothing at all, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. but you're right, yeah. Tom. It it does need to be talked about. People, I think, think so. Yeah, yeah. The sacrifice that an older generation made, and yeah. uh, we now enjoy a wonderful country, thank God, at peace and prosperity. Amen. Amen. Well, will we leave it there, Tom? Yeah, until next week. So, Ronnie. Uh, Tom, you're great. I look forward yeah. to talking again. Yeah, Bye, I Tom. Courage.
1: Yeah, God bless.
0: Take care.